Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. It is my honor and privilege to introduce Amy Berman. Amy Berman is a registered nurse and the senior program officer with the John A. Hartford Foundation. She writes articles, blogs, and tweets when she is not sitting beside colleagues like Dr. Atul Gawande and Dr. Kate Lally before the Senate Space Special Committee. Highlighting the needs, as she says, a deeper dive and conversation about values and goals, developing broad-based competencies, and increasing the number of experts in the field of palliative care. She has been a participant on the TED-Med panel discussing the great challenges of healthcare today. Amy is a strong proponent for strengthening education and empowering patients to make more informed decisions about the goals of care. She has been called one of the country's most inspirational advocates in the field of palliative care. Thank you for all that you do every day to support and alleviate symptom distress for our patients and families. Today, Amy will speak to us on what matters most with serious illness. On behalf of our leadership and management team, we want to welcome her and acknowledge her for her deep commitment to this work. Thank you, Amy. I just want to let everyone know that when we were finished, we will have an opportunity for questions and answers. So I would encourage you to jot down a note or two if you have it and would like to ask a question at the end. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I have the great pleasure of being in front of you um, in honor of National Nursing Week. So I want to thank uh, Metropolitan Jewish Health System for inviting me here today. I realize that while uh, nurses play a critical role in the needs of seriously ill people, um, that this is a team effort. And we have many people here who are beyond nursing. And so really for every member of the team, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So today, we're going to get the pleasure of talking about what matters most to those with serious illness. I have no conflicts of interest. So why are we here? We're here to learn uh, more about what are the needs of people with serious illness. And we're also here to understand what it means to provide good care to people with serious illness and what our unique role is, all of our roles, in supporting that kind of care. So we're going to do a little bit of visioning. So today, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the John A. Hartford Foundation. I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. We're going to talk about person-centered care quite a bit, um, and palliative care, which is, of course, person-centered care to the core, and why it matters. So I would be remiss if I didn't start by introducing where I come from, which is the John A. Hartford Foundation. The Hartford Foundation is located here in New York City. We've been around since the 1950s. Um, the foundation was, was formed um, by John A. Hartford. So this is a, a person. It's not Hartford Insurance. Uh, it's not Hartford, Connecticut. Um, so John A. Hartford was the son of the owner of the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, also known as the A&P food store chain. And he and his brother George um, had uh, established the foundation back in 1929, but when they passed away in the 50s, their monies essentially went into this foundation. And you'll notice that we have three priority areas. One, we call age-friendly health systems. So how can you provide the right kind of care to older adults across every setting of care? Another priority for us is family caregiving. And the third is serious illness and end-of-life care. So this is everything that we do. We are dedicated to improving the care of older adults. And if you look at these three circles, these three priority areas, you'll see that they're really all interrelated. Um, you can't have an interventional system that doesn't address serious illness. And if you don't support the needs of the family, you're really not caring for um, the seriously ill and making the system appropriate to older adults. So 
a little bit more about the foundation. It might surprise you to know that since 1982, when we focused solely on care of older adults, solely in this area, aging and health, that we have provided more than half a billion, with a B, more than half a billion dollars in developing the workforce, so geriatricians, geriatric nurses, um, geriatric social work, pharmacy, and others. So really the workforce for, for um, care of older adults, but also the models of care, um, what really helps older adults um, get the best quality outcomes and the best quality of life, things like palliative care, and we'll talk a little more about that. So when you think about the healthcare needs for older adults generally, these are the kinds of major problems that go on, and I'm assuming you all see this to some degree every day. You either see it um, through social media or the news, you read about these problems, Hopefully you're not seeing them where you are, but to some degree, the people that you serve, while you may provide the right kind of care, other places may not, and you may actually see the outcomes of these poor care. So one issue is poor coordination, another is duplication of services. So you go to a new place and they start all over again with the tests and treatments. Polypharmacy, well, People have many things wrong with them. You know the data on the comorbidities of older adults. Um, it is rare to find somebody who has a condition. They typically have multiple conditions. And so as you get older, you're seeing multiple providers, physicians, nurses, social workers, um, pharmacists. And as a result, each one is treating that disease or that condition. And when you put it all together, they oftentimes are providing care and treatment that is undoing or conflicting with other treatment. And polypharmacy cause, causes, of course, needless harms and even death. And the same thing happens for error-prone transitions. Um, when people come home from the hospital, they have a perfectly reconciled medication list. Perfectly reconciled. What, what we don't often think about is that when that person and that family, they go home, they go home to a medicine cabinet. And so they have the new medications in hand, but they're not really sure, do I keep taking the same ones as before and add these? So we've reconciled, they haven't reconciled. And I'll tell you just another complication, if they're going to the same pharmacy, since we don't discontinue medications at the community-based pharmacy, they could be picking up a medication that they've had before. It might already have been prepared for them, so when they pick up the new meds, there's an extra bottle in there. So we can cause harm and death. And then, of course, the end result is unnecessary hospitalizations. So these are general problems. But when we get to care of the seriously ill, people who have much more serious conditions and may be approaching end of life, may not be approaching end of life, but they're, they're experiencing serious illness, this is a special group of additional harms that we have to think about. The number one is care that's not important with a person's goals. So it's really important that we get this right for that person. As care becomes more complex, there are more critical choices about the life you want to live and balancing the right kind of treatment with the right kind of life. We'll say more about that today. There's a problem in the system itself about failing to inform people about their health. So they may use a term like cancer or congestive heart failure or diabetes. Um, chronic renal disease. They may use terms, but they're not telling people what that means and what the trajectory is around that care, how serious it is. And the other part of that is that they're not necessarily talking about the treatment options. Um, so they, they tell you what to do. But the treatment options, there are always options. And you have to think about that person, not just about the one condition, but about all of the things that are going on with them 
and really what's, what's the experience that they want or are willing to tolerate um, and what kind of outcomes are they hoping for. There are misperceptions around palliative care. Uh, I'm going to guess that if I queried everybody on this webinar, that some people would come up with very different definitions of palliative care. So we're going to come to a common definition. But let me just tell you up front, palliative care is not end-of-life care. Palliative care might be an end-of-life, but palliative care is more than that. And we're going to talk more about that. Overtreatment is a big problem for care of older adults. Anything that we have available, we're willing to throw out a disease, but it may not be the right treatment. And there's a lack of advanced care planning. So remember this top five, or maybe I should call it the bottom five. These are the worst problems for care of the seriously ill. So a little more about the priorities of the John A. Hartford Foundation. When it comes to age-friendly health systems, the most important things that we're focused on are what matters to older adults, improving health outcomes and reducing harms, and achieving lower costs and better value. And I'm sure these are all the things that you're interested in, too. For family caregivers, we want to help the health system assess and address the needs of families. Too often, families are either poorly supported or they're given some light teaching the day of somebody Somebody's walking out the door, and of course people bounce back because the family just doesn't really know what to do. And we also want to advance policies around family-centered care. <clears throat> and then it's serious illness and end of life. We want to make palliative care more widely available, high-quality palliative care, not just in the hospital but also out in the community. We support clinician training, and we want to promote greater advanced care planning. So now I get to tell you a story. Uh -huh. This is a selfie. <laughs> so I'm here in a white waffle weave robe, the same kind of robe I was wearing the day that I went to see my doctor. About seven and a half years ago, I went to the doctor because I had a funny-looking spot on my right breast. That funny-looking spot was not a lump. It was red and dimpled, little tiny area, red and dimpled. It looked like the skin of an orange. You know what the skin of an orange looks like? And everybody here know what the skin of an orange looks like? <laughs> well, this is a cardinal sign for a certain kind of cancer. It's called Hoda orange, and it is the hallmark of a disease called inflammatory breast cancer. And I had just read an article in the American Journal of Nursing about a month before this happened to me. And I've never been one of those people who thinks that there's something wrong with me. That's just not part of my DNA. But I saw it, and it looked exactly like what they were describing. Having read the article, I also read that there was no cure for this disease, and that out of all of the breast cancers, this one had the worst prognosis. In other words, the shortest life. So I went immediately to my primary care doctor um, and her nurse practitioner, and the two of them saw me together. And when they looked, they had the same look on their face that I had had the day before. That was the first time that I knew that what I was thinking might be true. That night, I went home and I read as much as I could read about inflammatory breast cancer didn't know yet whether I had it, but the following day I had been squeezed in to get a mammogram and then a biopsy. Well, the mammogram, um, this was the white robe that I wore that day. I mean, this is, this is not that day, but this is pretty much how I looked. And if you can imagine, um, I went into this place where they offer the mammograms and women were there for their routine mammograms. Some of them were there to see whether their cancer had, um, had gone past five years, whether they, you know, believed that they were cancer-free at that point. And other people were like me, that they were being diagnosed, potentially diagnosed with cancer. And nobody knew who anybody else was. We're all sitting there in our little robes. 
And one by one, they would have people go into the room where they did the mammography. And we would sit. And we would wait until they actually looked at the films. And then occasionally, they would ask somebody to step back into the room and get additional films. And this was a process. And I was there. It was lunch hour. And um, there was a, a really beautiful woman sitting next to me, African-American, wearing a set of pearls around her neck and in her white waffle wreath, though. And um, so we were sitting together, and she had a nervous look on her face. And I was imagining that maybe she was looking to see whether she was still cancer-free. She looked really well. I mean, you kind of make up a story in your head about what's going on with the people around you. And I went in. When I went in, I told the mammographer, take the extra films. She looked at me like I was nuts. And she started to do the mammography. And everybody, any woman in this room has gone through what I've gone through. Your breast is squashed, and the woman is looking at a machine as it's taking the images. And as she's looking down, she started looking up at me. And then she started looking down, and she had the same look that my doctor and my nurse practitioner <coughs> And that was my second confirmation that something really was wrong. And I don't know whether she took the extra films. I assume she did. I was in there for a while. And I went back and sat down. All of a sudden, as I'm sitting there with this group of women all looking like we're getting manicures and pedicures, um, all of a sudden, all of the physicians, the fellows, the residents, and the nurse practitioners started pouring into the radiologist's room. That room was a little tiny room. There were only maybe three seats in front of three little computers little tiny room, and there was really only one radiologist reading at one of those stations. But at this point, there were probably about 20 clinicians in the room. And they were all like peering their heads over to look at what was on that screen. It was, it was terrifying. And the women who were sitting with me, they were all wondering whether it was them. The, the woman who was sitting right next to me, the one in the pearls, beautiful woman in the pearls, she looked like she was going to throw up. And in my heart of hearts, knowing what I already felt I knew, I got up because I really thought it was me. I thought, it's a rare cancer. If that's what they're seeing, they're calling them into the room to see it. I went across the hall, walked the three feet, and I went to the radiologist who's sitting at the first chair, and I said, my name's Amy Berman. Are those my films? And the radiologist very kindly asked everybody to leave the room. And she sat me down next to her. And she said, would you like to meet the enemy? I know that radiologists aren't supposed to tell people the diagnosis. What she did was to hear my fear and my need to know. And she responded to it in the most person-centered way. She let me into my own story. She helped me understand. She showed me what she was seeing and what they suspected. And of course, they'd have to biopsy it to confirm. That was the way that I found out that I had cancer. So inflammatory breast cancer, unlike other breast cancers, the other breast cancers, 90% or more survive five or more years, which is great. We've made great progress. This particular cancer, because it's not a lump, because it isn't contained and it can't be removed easily, because it floats freely in the lymphatic system, and it only appears on the skin after it begins to kind of clump up 
and you see that sign, by that time, it typically is already floating in your body. It's either stage three or stage four, meaning it's either spread far or spread very far. It's not curable. Well, my prognosis, it was 40% that I would live to five years. Unlikely that I would live to five years. I went for a PET scan to see how far the cancer was in my body, where it was. And they inject you with a radioactive sugar, and there was a spot that showed up. It was a spot on my lower spine. Now, the cancer is floating places, but they wanted to see if that was, in fact, cancer, whether it was attracted to the bone. And so the only way to find out was to biopsy my lower spine, to remove a piece of my lower spine. I was surprised. It really didn't hurt. It felt like, has anybody ever gotten a noogie in your back? That's about as much as it hurt. It really didn't hurt. Um, it seemed like it was going to be a big deal, but it really wasn't. But I was going for a second opinion about inflammatory breast cancer to another doctor. And the night before I went to this doctor, I got a call that it was in fact in my lower spine, that it was stage four. Now you remember I told you 40% survived to five years? <clears throat> well, if you are diagnosed at stage four, the prognosis, the likely course of the disease, 11 to 20% survived to five years. So it just went from unlikely to highly unlikely. Tough. Really tough. Well, I have to tell you, you know, I went to the doctor, the first doctor, who had seen the cancer. And before I went to the other person for the second opinion, she said, what's important to you? Given the fact that there isn't a cure for this cancer, what's important to you? And I told her, if you can't cure this, can we manage it? What I really would like is Niagara Falls. And what I meant by that was I feel really good. And I did. When I was diagnosed, I felt absolutely fine. I didn't have a problem. So I started up here with great quality of life. And I'm ending here, which is the universal we all end here. And I want to go good, good, good and drop off the cliff. <laughs> I think most people would want that, don't you? Yes. Okay. So try to push out the good days for as long as possible. Try to limit the bad days. You know, it's really about my quality of life. When I went to that second doctor to get a second opinion, this doctor said, here's what we're going to do. Now, I have to tell you those are chilling words. Because instead of asking what's important to me, my Niagara Falls trajectory, this doctor had a plan. And this doctor said, this is what I do for all my patients. He said, we are going to do the most intense chemotherapy you can handle. Then we will do a mastectomy followed by radiation and more intense chemotherapy. We are going to fight. Sounds like a good plan, right? Well, only if it's going to get me to a better place. I said, is that going to cure me? He said, no, but this is what I do for all my patients. <laughs> so you remember I start here feeling good, and I end here at the universal we all end here, and I want to go good, good, good and drop off the cliff, right? This doctor was going to drop me off the cliff with surgery and treatment that would immediately debilitate me. And would it get me a different outcome? No, I'd go out to the same endpoint. So I went back to the original doctor, and I started treatment. And the way that we made the treatments, we chose to do medications that had the least amount of side effect. 
I'm managing cancer. I'm managing it as a chronic disease. Now, it is. It's a chronic disease until I'm at end of life. Not right now. So that's how I started this process. This is an arm selfie. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew that you could take an arm selfie? <laughs> You know, you're supposed to credit all of your photos. <laughs> uh, okay. It is a selfie. Um, I, I took this picture because some people don't think that I'm getting treatment. You know, maybe they're misinterpreting and saying, oh, she's not doing treatment. She's only focusing on comfort. What I'm doing is entirely focused on my comfort, but it is treatment. I am getting treatment to try to keep my bones strong. So this was an infusion that I took for my bones. I do take a medication. Instead of getting the chemo cocktail for my cancer, I happen to take one that's in a pill form every night. But I do take medications. And these medications are intended to hold back the cancer and to try to keep my bones strong. So I definitely have a plan. But what I don't do, I did not do surgery. I haven't had surgery. Um, and there's no reason because the cancer is floating everywhere in my body. You know, that would give me more harm and it actually wouldn't change the outcomes. Um, but I do take treatment to hold back the cancer. And I have to say, remember that prognosis? 11 to 20% survived to five years. I am happy to report I am at seven and a half years. in the room, I can only tell you I am a rigorous, happy person who gets to live a great life, and I still have lots of fun. <laughs> so at the beginning, when I was first diagnosed, you might remember there was something in the news, terrible term, death panels. Do you remember that? Yes. Okay, so this was really, right as I was diagnosed, that was the headline. And the, the concept was that if somebody were to talk to you about your illness, that somehow they might move you toward things that were of greater benefit to the clinician or to the, the payer, the insurer, or to the health system, that they might kind of sway you into doing things that were better for them. And that was a terrible thing because... I just couldn't understand how could care be patient-centered if we're not going to discuss serious illness with the patient. And in fact, if we didn't have these discussions, you're 100% guaranteed to only get the care that everybody else wants you to get. So without these discussions, we're simply not part of it. So this is how I think about that. Imagine you go to your doctor and you say, I want care. Treat me. That's what happens every day. People go to their doctor and they say, treat me. It's kind of like getting into a cab and saying, take me to the airport. Except you end up at LaGuardia when you want a JFK. <laughs> so making sure that we're getting to the right place, what we're trying to achieve for our health is really key. So there was a study done of older people um, in senior centers. So these are people who have particular debility, functional impairment. These are people who are living with complex conditions. By the way, that picture, these are actual friends. They're called the Honeys. They're a swim team. They actually, if you ever come to my office, they grace my walls. It's my favorite picture. Maybe they don't look like they're at a senior center, but <laughs> I, I love the Honeys, and they're lifelong but when they, when they asked older adults with serious conditions what was most important to them, this is really interesting. This was the order. Independence. I don't want to be a burden on my children. I want to live at home. Different things that meant independence. They wanted their pain addressed. They wanted to feel well and maintain function. Go to church on Sunday, play mahjong, whatever the doing was, they wanted to have function to be able to do something. And no pun intended, but dead last, mm -hmm. length of life. 
That was not the primary concern. In fact, that was so far down. This is what's important. And yet, if you think about it, when we do evidence-based treatments and protocols, we're only focused on an extra three months of life and to heck with what the quality of that life is, right? Mm -hmm. So this really doesn't work. We really have to change how we think about treatments. And we really need to ask the question so that we make sure we're aligning those, those care treatments with what's important to the people we serve and on an individual basis. They have to fit that person. So when I was diagnosed, I made a decision to start writing um, pretty early. To, so I had always been engaged with serious illness care, palliative care. Um, you know, I had been working in this field long before I was diagnosed. And I took being diagnosed as an opportunity to maybe share the perspective and get an insider's view. And one of the pieces that I wrote was for health affairs, and in that same uh, issue of health affairs, a themed issue on cancer, uh, was a really interesting article that I, it, it kind of shocked me. So it was a survey of 2,000 physicians, and it could have been 2,000 nurse practitioners, because I have to tell you, I don't think it would have been that much different. Um, 2,000 physicians describing what they do. So not somebody looking at a medical record and figuring out and thinking or observing and describing. These are doctors reporting on themselves. And they were asked about the prognosis. You know, how likely are they to tell people the truth about their condition? And this shocks me. Mm -hmm. So two-thirds either put a rosier prognosis or the family, patient and family, or they lied outright. This is their self-report. This is not somebody making a judgment. This is physicians judging themselves. Really harsh. Um, it, it's a real challenge. I'm sure you know one of the reasons for this is that people, honestly, don't necessarily get a lot of preparation around this. They don't get a lot of reinforcement around this. Um, and there's a great discomfort. There was a piece that Diane Meyer wrote, um, also in Health Affairs, about a woman who had brain cancer. And the doctor was ready to insert an intrathecal catheter, a catheter to put chemotherapy right into her brain. And this is after everything else had failed. And Diane had been called to be consulted uh, about this person, and she asked the doctor privately, why are we doing this? And the doctor said, I, I don't have anything else to offer with this. But when he said it, he realized he did. And it was really where the care changed and focused on making her comfortable and not doing things that would continue to make her uncomfortable and would not give her any benefit. And in fact, that would have not only made her uncomfortable, it would have changed her ability to think and participate in life. It would have drastically changed her life. These are real challenges. We have to do more clinician training in this area. And now we get to the star of the show. This is the main course, palliative care. Now, I'm assuming that a lot of people who are on this line are, are watching the webinar because they already know about palliative care, or hospice, or end-of-life care, or care of seriously ill. But I'm hoping that there are some who don't know about it, and some that are going to learn about it in the right way. So palliative care focuses on improving pain and symptoms. Managing life, it, it does care coordination, it helps with the family, um, and it can start at the time of a serious diagnosis, not just cancer, dementia, congestive heart failure, anything that is a particularly burdensome disease, and it can be provided along with curative treatment. So when they did focus groups, 
what they found was that what most helps people understand it is that it is an extra layer of support that goes with care and treatment, an extra layer of support, that that was the thing that people understood. And of course, it's a team, physician, nurse, nurse practitioner, pharmacist, social worker, chaplain, the list goes on. It is team-based care at its finest, and it focuses on what's important to that person and helping them to live the best possible life. Now, that last bullet can be provided with curative treatment. There's a phrase, any stage, any age. Palliative care is for people who are cured. It is for people who are going to have chronic disease. And it's for people at end of life. Now, why do you think it would be important for palliative care to be part of curative care? I welcome anybody in the room. You're welcome to say an answer. Why would it be important for curative care? Anybody want to throw out a reason? Curative care often impacts quality of life. That's right. So whether it's that the disease that can impact quality of life or the treatment, just to get through curative care to the other side, palliative care can help get you through. For chronic conditions, for chronic disease, and remember, so I've got stage 4 cancer, but I have chronic disease. This is chronic. Um, it helps people live well in the face of serious illness. Now, remember they, they did the focus groups and extra layer of support? I have my own phrase. I call it the best friend of the seriously ill. <laughs> so I, I think that it's incredibly important. But palliative care helps people who are living for long periods of time with difficult conditions to live a great life. And then at end of life, care can be exclusively palliative. I mean, at end of life, some people will do treatment until the end, but more people will move toward, as Barbara Bush did, you know, toward really focusing on comfort. I would focus in that way. And in terms of a, of a structure, hospice is a benefit that focuses in that way. It can focus, there, there's now concurrent care that can be offered. So some people are getting um, palliative care along with, um, with treatment. But in general, in hospice, this is, this is at the end of life it very much focuses on making people comfortable, having the best quality of life at the end. So this is a little more on palliative care. This is just one study, but I thought it might be helpful for you to see kind of what the effects of palliative care are. And there are so many studies, they're coming out more and more, but it's the same headline. If you were to look at the side of the slides toward me, hospital days, skilled nursing facility days. That's all the care that's expensive and unwanted. People don't want to be in the hospital and they don't want to be in the nursing home. Some have to be, but this is expensive and unwanted. We'll put it on that side. If you look at the other side, you get to see the good work that Metropolitan Jewish does around home health, physician office visits. So the care that people want and the care that also happens to be less expensive care that allows people to stay in the community is on that side. So what happens? So this was looking at usual care versus palliative care intervention added to treatment. So not without treatment. So you see emergency room visits dropping just a tiny bit. Sure. Hospital days, okay, I'm being facetious, a lot. <laughs> and skilled nursing facility days. So all of the care moves in the right direction when palliative care is introduced. So one of the components of palliative care is advanced care planning. And so this is really the opportunity for people to state the care that they want and the care that they want to avoid. And if we look at the data, 75% of people are unable to make some or all decisions at the end of life. In other words, it is highly unlikely that you're going to be the decision maker. So if you trust a complete stranger to be making decisions about your care, don't do advanced care planning. 
But if you want somebody to know what you would want and speak for you, you, you do advanced care planning. You pick a proxy, but don't just pick a proxy. You have to then tell them what are the things that you would want. Because remember, if you don't tell them what you want along with filling out that form, you have an opportunity for somebody to be torn for the rest of their lives making a decision and not knowing whether it was the right decision for you. So I would strongly um, encourage you yourselves in your families to make sure that you've done advanced care planning. I have a healthcare proxy. It is my mother. But I write extensively about my decisions, so today you can all be my healthcare proxy. <laughs> so unfortunately, we, we did a, a survey, a nationally representative survey of physicians around advanced care planning, and 99% of physicians said it's important to do advanced care planning. It's important for them, not for somebody else that they themselves should be doing it with their patients, not somebody else should be doing mm -hmm. it with their patients. 99% mm -hmm. of physicians don't say the same thing very often. Mm -hmm. So this is a very high degree of support for advanced care planning. But if you look at the second bullet, half of them said, I just don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. So going back to those earlier conversations, there's a great discomfort and a real need for clinician training. I have to say, this is more likely to be embedded into the nursing curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, nurses tend to be stronger in this domain. Um, social work has been very active in this domain, but in different states, there are different ways in which we engage. Um, I have to say, we have to figure this out as a team, but regardless, it, it has to occur. So I had the pleasure here within the health system. Is Maimonides part of MJ? Okay, they're affiliated. No. Okay. Well, we I was. I, we, we've had a we long have, relationship with them, but there's not affiliation. Okay. Yeah. Collaboration. Well, I'll just say uh, on the day when I went for the bone biopsy, um, I had to go for pre-admission testing. So I'm sorry. It was the day before the bone biopsy. I went to get the pre-admission blood work and fill out the paperwork, as people do. And one of the things that they asked, which all hospitals ask, is, do you have an advanced directive? Would you like to complete an advanced directive? And I said, yes. And I had the most delicious social worker come <laughs> with a clipboard. She was <laughs> eager as can be um, because Apparently, it isn't very often that people yes. say yes. <laughs> and so she sat there and she went through it. And I had my mother come up because I thought it was going to be major and debilitating to have a bone biopsy of your spine. But it, it wasn't. So we ended up, you know, having some nice time together. But she was there with me when I made her the healthcare proxy. And we were just loving the social worker. Um, so... I do have to say, you know, there are places throughout the health system, hospitals are known for them, and hospitals will then keep a copy of that record on file. But you take a copy of that, make sure primary care or nurse practitioner, you know, make sure that they have a copy of it. And any other place that you may get treated, you bring a copy of that. And make sure that that's the instruction that you give to your patients. Because it's only as good as somebody having access to it. Or you can do the tattoo across your chest thing, which I highly <laughs> recommend. I'm not into the tattoos. Okay, so this is how people want to die. At home, in their bed, in their jammies, on their pillow, with the dog laying at the end of the bed, and the family around them. I mean, this, this is a picture of how people would want to go. And unfortunately, this is really, um, and this is a clean version. There's no blood, guts, and gore showing here at all. This is how people die. The, the truth is that 70% want to die at home, and 70% die in an institutional setting. Now, I think some of this is because we, clinicians, have not been as active as we need to be about kind of asking people 
what do you really want? Because unless we document these things and make them very clear, this is what's going to happen. And I do realize that people are scared at a certain point. They get scared. They may change their mind. Healthcare proxies can be changed. This is not a one-time, a one-and-done. So it's important to know that what somebody wants, they can change. But encouraging them and letting them know that you'll be there for them, whatever their decision, makes a difference. So the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine did two reports in the past couple of years, one on cancer in the 21st century and one on um, dying in America. And both of them came up with the same set of recommendations, things that we've been talking about today. Patient-centered care, better mm -hmm. communication, listening goals, advanced care planning, and ah, palliative care. Both of these reports, the highest body of science in the country, this is what they suggest. So, um, and this is formerly known as the Institute on Medicine, if you're not familiar with the new term. So here is one of the places that really does much work nationally to prepare palliative care teams and to prepare places to implement and spread palliative care. And so that's the Center to Advance Palliative Care. Diane Meyer leads that. Today it's in 90% of large hospitals. Um, but we're increasingly focused on spreading it within those hospitals because you can be in a large hospital and not get palliative care when you need it. And we want to spread it into the community. So right now, if it's in 90% of large hospitals, unfortunately, you can be in that hospital and not have the care. But in the community, you don't have to have everything fall apart to finally get access. So there is a report card um, on the Center to Advanced Palliative Care's website. It's a state report card. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this report card, but it basically shows states and regions of the country. And the area that always lags is the south. So New York, where we are, happens to do pretty well around palliative care. It doesn't mean we couldn't do better, but we are much higher up. We're, we're actually pretty good. Um, the South is lagging behind, although it's beginning to catch up. But the next report card, the next time they do it, they will be focused on, on the community <coughs> as well. And I'm going to expect that there will be no part of the country that's doing very well. Because this is something that really is at the genesis. So a lot of places are starting community-based palliative care. You may have it integrated within oncology care. You may have it integrated within other kinds of um, conditions that have very difficult symptom burden. But it still is hard for people to get access to it until much later. And palliative care should be you know, at the beginning of care for the serious ill. All right. Now we're going to get to a little bit of fun. <laughs> And these are mammal-eating lions. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, I am standing with them. They're not trained. Um, do you see the stick? Yes. Now yeah. I see a stick. Okay. So off camera, there are five or six gentlemen, locals, mm -hmm. that have sticks like that. And I went on a walk. I had to fill out a release saying that I wouldn't sue them. If I got eaten, <laughs> I wouldn't sue them if I got eaten. Um, and I had to walk far behind the lions. And on this walk, these lions, they went after prey. Uh, the big male lion um, climbed up to the top of a tree, ate another animal, like swallowed it. Uh, they don't chew. They just rip a piece off and swallow it whole. I always thought that they couldn't climb up trees. I thought that would be my safe spot. But what happens uh, was after they would eat, they would find a place and settle down. 
And in that moment, we had been told beforehand that we would walk a very big circle around the lines, and we would stand behind them, but we couldn't crouch. If we crouched, we would look like food, and we would be eaten. And the men, those local men, took their sticks and they're tapping them lightly on the ground to call the attention of the lion forward as I walk that big circle, to stand behind, to have this picture taken. About two weeks ago, somebody on one of these tours was eaten. <laughs> so, you know, it is definitely not without risk. Mm. I'm sharing this picture. There's a purpose. <laughs> what is that purpose? Those men who are off camera, I view as my palliative care team. And this is me walking with my cancer. They are there to protect me. They are there to step in when I need it. I'm walking in a risky situation, but I can walk peacefully with it. And this is, this is that image that really kind of means what I'm experiencing. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Did they? Yes. And you're very brave. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to that checklist. These are the top or bottom five, depending upon which you want to say, problems with the care of the seriously ill. Care that's not concordant with the patient's goals failure to inform a person about their health and their treatment options, misperceptions about palliative care, that it's only end of life, I don't know, overtreatment, lack of advanced care planning. That's the five. And so my question to all of you is, what do people want most in serious illness? And my answer is, they want to live well. And I thank you. Thank you, Amy. And before uh, we close, I just want to take an opportunity to thank everyone that made this possible today. Thank you, Stacey Finelli, who really spearheaded this. And thank you to Karen Richards and her team and Katrina and anyone else that had anything to do, uh, Sean Davidson at the front desk and everyone for attending. Um, we're going to have a few minutes of Q&A, and while we get that ready, I would like to present you with these flowers and our appreciation for your wonderful time with us. Thank you. It was our pleasure. So I know we're going to have questions and answers in, in a moment. Um, I hope that this was thought-provoking for you, because oftentimes people only talk about palliative care or care of the seriously ill <coughs> in a clinical aspect. I am, I can talk about it in a clinical aspect, but they don't often kind of tie in what the experience is for people and how important it is. While we get ready to tee up the Q&A, I do want to share one example of what my palliative care team did for me. About a year and a half ago, I had pain in the middle of my back. Now, I had never had pain in the middle of my back. And in, in fact, <coughs> it ruined the quality of my life. I mean, I felt awful. It just took everything out of me. And so I went and had a, an x-ray, hoping that it was a fracture, but it wasn't. It was cancer going to a new place. Hmm. And so the cure for that, the treatment for that, it's my cure, the treatment for that is to have radiation. And typically you would have 10 to 20 doses of radiation. But I went to my palliative care team. Thank you, palliative care. If anybody is on who's from a palliative care team, thank you, palliative care. And they said there had just been an article out the month before. 16,000 people in Canada they looked at those that took the regular 10 to 20 doses versus those that took what are, what's called single fraction radiation therapy, one dose but a larger dose. Mm -hmm. And they had the same outcome. So think about it. Would you want to take 10 to 20 days out of work 
Would you want to get the crushing fatigue, redness, burning, peeling, whatever? Or would you like to have one and done? So I listened to my palliative care team, who, by the way, prescribed also, they did prescribe an opioid for me. Because sometimes you have the pain flare after they give you this one dose. It's kind of the turning off of the nerve, but it can mm -hmm. get sharp pain and then it dissipates. And they said, if I have to take the opioid, then I needed to take Miralax. <laughs> so it didn't end up um, in the emergency room, uh, you know, with other, other kinds of intestinal problems. Um, and to this day, I still have not taken an opioid. That's probably surprising to you, seven and a half years into having stage four cancer. It's probably an unusual story, but I haven't needed it, and I do, I do take it with me when I'm on my trips. If anything goes wrong, I figure, let, let me just get back home and then get mm -hmm. the right care. Mm -hmm. I really don't want to show up in an emergency room. But P.S., thanks to the palliative care team, I went to my radiation oncologist, I had never had radiation before, and I said, I would like single fraction radiation therapy. <laughs> I didn't know what that term meant until I spoke with my palliative care team. And the radiation oncologist was looking like nobody's ever asked me for this. And he said he was trained at McGill in Canada, where they do single fraction radiation therapy. So he did it. And I had it done. And the next day, I was on an Acela train to Washington, D.C., feeling fine. I didn't even have redness. Wow. I didn't feel, you don't feel the radiation. No redness, no burning, no crushing fatigue, no loss of appetite. I've never had loss of appetite. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had loss of appetite. But that's what palliative care did for me. They not only helped me make a good decision that fit with my needs, but they also helped me avoid the potential problems that might have come, which fortunately didn't, but I was ready for them. Go palliative care. Joyce, I have a question for Amy that was sent. Okay, great. Amy, how did you end up selecting your plan of care, and it seems different from what your oncologist proposed? So, um, I ended up choosing care with the first oncologist. Um, and we talked about what the goals of care were, but I am not deeply knowledgeable about what the treatment options would be. So she talked to me about what the treatment options were, what they would feel like, what it would mean short-term and long-term, and we tried to organize care so that it was the least amount of side effects so that I could keep living a life. Because remember, there wasn't a cure. But I went to a second doctor, and they wanted to throw everything at the cancer, meaning throw everything at my body. Mm -hmm. And even though it wasn't going to improve my life, and it would significantly not improve my life, it would hurt my life. So I went back to the first doctor and took treatment with them. And as a follow-up, did your family or friends disagree with or voice concern for the treatment decision that you had chosen? And if so, how did you help them to understand? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I told my family, and my family was very supportive, but the one person who I couldn't get a read on was my own daughter. My daughter, every time I would talk to her about these decisions, she cried. And she couldn't stop crying. And then I'd cry, and the two of us would be crying. And, you know, I really wanted her to get some help. I wanted her to talk to somebody. Because I, I really couldn't tell whether my choices were affecting her or whether, you know, simply having the diagnosis was affecting her or any of the above. Um, but she didn't want to go seek help, and we certainly had as much conversation in the family as we could. And about two months into this, she certainly knew what my decisions were. Um, I asked her again, Stephanie, are you okay with this? And she said, Mom, this is a no-brainer. And that was like, it, it was the greatest sentence. <laughs> it, was, mm -hmm. it was the greatest gift. And of course, now we talk about this stuff all the time. Um, I've never had somebody who didn't agree with, with the decision 
when they understood why I'm making the decision. But I have to tell you, at the beginning of all of this, I didn't know whether I would be on the longer life or shorter life end of the spectrum. As it turns out, um, I have so far outlived everybody that I've known who's, who's been diagnosed since me. Mm -hmm. uh, with one exception, there is one woman who I admire greatly who's lived longer than me. Mm -hmm. But many people who were diagnosed after me have not done as well, and they've done much more aggressive, much more aggressive care. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm sorry. That's all the time we have for questions. Okay, thank you. Thank you.